Well, welcome to today's webinar on resonance rights, including visitation, resonant records, communication, and we'll also get to voting. Uh, my name is Eric Goldwine, and I'll be uh, uh, presenting with our executive director, Richard Mollett. So before we get started in the presentation, just a little about LTCCC. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving care and quality of life for the elderly and adult disabled in long-term care. We also host uh, two long-term care um, ombudsman programs in New York, and we focus on local and national. Um, our, and our focus is people who live in nursing homes and assisted living. Uh, we conduct policy analysis and system advocacy, again, for New York State and nationally. We also provide education for consumers and family and ombudsmen and other stakeholders. Um, I'm Eric Goldwine. I've been with LTCCC since uh, June 2019, and Richard is our executive director. He's been with LTCCC since 2002. And you should check out our website. It's nursinghome411.org. We have all sorts of resources and materials, education, uh, data. We actually just revamped our site a few weeks ago. Um, so yeah, visit our site. It's nursinghome411.org. We'll be posting this presentation on there as well as on YouTube. So today's agenda, we are going to start with an update on COVID-19 data, uh, followed by a discussion of several important resonance rights, including visitation. Uh, I know that's uh, on the front of everybody's mind right now, uh, but we're also gonna discuss access to resonant records and communication. And we're also gonna uh, briefly talk about voting. This was the subject of our previous webinar, but with the election now uh, two weeks, away, we wanted to remind everybody about residents' rights to voting. So first, I'm going to go over a update on the COVID-19 data in long-term care facilities uh, with a discussion on the national data and the New York state data. And for those who've uh, attended previous webinars before, I'm going to you're, you've heard this message before, but this data should be taken with a grain of salt. There are limitations with the data that I'm about to convey to you. There are uh, errors in the data. And most importantly, it's uh, while these data can provide valuable information, uh, there's more to what's going on in long-term care settings than the COVID cases and the COVID related fatalities. Uh, residents are suffering from isolation, abuse, neglect, substandard care, and not all of this will be captured in the numbers and the data that I'm about to relay to you. So with that in mind, I'm going to start by uh, chatting about the national COVID numbers in, U in the U.S. So as of now, about two of every five U.S. COVID deaths are from a long-term care facility settings. I think it's actually 38% according to Kaiser Family Foundation. That's, um, it's a vulnerable population. So in a sense, it's not surprising that this uh, population is bearing the brunt of COVID-19's consequences. But with that said, it's an entirely too large of a number. Uh, so according to Kaiser Family Foundation, there are about 500,000 cases among resident and staff in long-term care settings and 84,000 deaths in long-term care settings. There are, uh, I think the latest estimate is about 220,000 deaths overall, uh, COVID-related deaths overall in the U.S. So again, that's 40% of the overall deaths are in long-term care settings. Now, these data vary by state, they vary by community, they vary by facility. Um, some states like New York, uh, the cases and fatalities have plateaued um, to an extent, while other places were seeing rapid, ri uh, rapid rise in the numbers. Um, 
including, uh, I think it's North Dakota uh, uh, has experienced a recent rapid rise, both in their community at large and in long-term care settings. Uh, CMS, uh, the Center for Medicaid Services, is also reporting long-term care uh, COVID data. Their, uh, their information, unlike Kaiser Family Foundation, is only including nursing home, so that does not include assisted living. And according to their count, there are about 400,000 uh, COVID cases in long-term care and 60 thousand deaths. Again, that's lower than the Kaiser Family Foundation numbers that we just reported. And it's it can be explained in part because it does not include assisted living, uh, assisted living deaths and cases. So digging into New York State, uh, you'll see for those that are viewing the webinar, you'll see a map on the right that shows that the um, Cases are not uh, uniform across the state. There are some areas, the darker shades of orange and red, where there are higher, uh, there are a larger number of cases. There are some areas where there's not as many. Um, the deaths have plateaued, but there have been uh, 6,692 uh, through, um, through October 12th, according to the New York Department of Health. This data does not include fatalities that occurred outside of facilities. So we're very concerned that whatever number we're receiving is not uh, telling the whole story. I mentioned before in New York State, the cases and fatalities have plateaued compared to how they were before, but there are still some areas, including Erie and Steuben County, where we're seeing troubling signs. And um, just in the state as a whole, not just in long-term care, we are see seeing warning signs of increases over the last few weeks. Uh, daily, this is according to the Washington Post, uh, daily reported cases have uh, risen 1.6% in the last week. Uh, daily reported deaths are up 40%. And COVID-related hospitalizations are up 6.4%. And given what we have learned about community spread, um, this is a troubling sign for uh, what might be ahead in New York State's long-term care facilities. So moving on to, to voting uh, before- oh, Eric, I, um, yeah, oh, I'm sorry, before you move on, I just actually wanted to plug in. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, while, you, while you were talking, I got a alert on my phone with with um, breaking news from the CDC saying that um, that they that there's actually been 285,000 more U.S. deaths than occur in a typical year. Um, so that is really looking at the discrepancy. And you, know, you mentioned before one taking the the data with a grain of salt, but also recognizing that you know unfortunately a lot of people are dying because their families aren't there to advocate for them because the staffing is um, is not sufficient in facilities to provide the care that they need. So I just it just was very interesting that that just happened to come in while you were talking about it, and I wanted to to let people know that you know this is again it, it's not just a um, let me just say it's a very real concern that people are dying from other reasons other than COVID directly because of poor care and lack of monitoring in facilities. Thanks, thanks, thanks Richard. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, th I think it's a, it's definitely important to note excess. I think that's the term excess deaths. Uh, these are uh, these are deaths that didn't need to happen, and there is data supporting that in previous years they weren't happening. And then again, that's setting aside the isolation, neglect, uh, all of the uh, reports of substandard care that are are devastating, but just the, the, the excess deaths alone are really um, a troubling, troubling finding. So the first re residence rights uh, we're gonna discuss today is voting. Again, this was the topic of the webinar uh, last month, but the election is two weeks away and we want to make sure that 
everybody here is equipped with the information that they need to advocate for residents and also to advocate for your yourselves. Um, but uh, today we're going to focus on the rights of long-term care residents and voting is a a right of residents in long-term care facilities just because you're in a nursing home does not mean you have different rights than other U.S. citizens. So federal rules for nursing homes protect residents' voting rights. The language, uh, I'll, I'll read it verbatim, uh, but the, the language makes this clear, the legal language. Uh, the resident has the right to exercise his or her right as a resident of the facility and as a citizen of or resident of the United States. The facility must ensure that the resident can exercise their rights without interference, coercion, discrimination, or reprisal from the facility. And the resident has the right to be free of interference, coercion, discrimination, and reprisal from the facility in exercising his or her rights to be supported by the facility in the exercise of his or her rights as required under the subpart. So that was a mouthful. But the short of it is that residents have voting rights. Uh, we, uh, I spoke to elder law expert Nina Cohn, who has been uh, writing op-ed. She's been interviewed in basically every, every publication about this topic. Uh, she's been studying nursing home voting rights for, uh, for years. And what I think she said it uh, plainly to me, the right to vote is a fundamental right and living in long-term care does not undermine it. So we put together a voting resource page on our website, uh, nursinghome411.org slash voting. Again, that's nursinghome411.org slash voting. If you visit the site, you'll be able to watch our webinar uh, on voting rights that we put out uh, last month. We also are posting links to the podcast interview with uh, Nina Cohn and also uh, some of our um, some resources we find helpful, including vote.org, which includes, uh, I'll actually get to that in the, in the next slide, but that includes deadlines and information on voting on each state. Um, we have a quick guide on assisting cognitively impaired individuals with voting. Um, that's uh, by the American Bar Association and other resources. And uh, so I mentioned vote.org. Well, first off the election, just a reminder, it's Tuesday, November 3rd, but you don't need to wait until then to take action. Um, so if you visit vote.org, you can see information on registration and voting, including in-person or mail-in for every U.S. state. Um, you can see information, read information about voting uh, in COVID-19 pandemic and, and about the um, safety and issues that you, uh, that are making this election different. And lastly, there's still time to vote by absentee ballot and, all, uh, and you can look at state-specific information for absentee ballot deadlines uh, on the link here, uh, vote.org slash absentee dash ballot dash deadlines. And it, again, vote.org is a tremendous resource. You'll, um, you can see information on each state. Uh, for example, Pennsylvania, um, there was a report uh, or there was a court ruling yesterday which extended the mail-in deadline so that if the uh, if they received the votes, I believe it was three days after the election, they still count. And I checked vote.org uh, this morning and it included that information. So it includes up-to-date information no matter what state you are in. And I'm gonna pass it to Richard, uh, who's gonna discuss visitation. And just a note about the captions for the next uh, minute or so, uh, we're not gonna have subtitles, but they'll be back. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Um, so yes, I'm going to talk first about visitation. It's of course been a major issue that we're hearing from um, from families, from ombudsmen, and uh, we know that it really is at the heart of, of you know our resident advocacy is the ability for people to get into facilities to visit with residents to see what's going on. 
Uh, next slide, please. Sorry about that. Thank you. Sorry about that. I usually have the phone next to me to make sure it doesn't go off. Um, so I wanted to talk, I really wanted to actually lay out in the next couple of slides what the rules are and what has been happening with the rules over the last you know, six to seven months now. So first, these are the normal federal rules. And if you have the slide, and again, we're posting this on the website uh, and the recording will be available. These are taken exactly from the federal rules. And so the federal will say that one, the nursing home resident, it's a resident's home. And the resident has the ability to get, uh, to have visitors 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just as if they would in, in their own private home. Of course, it's a congregate setting. So one has to be respectful of others uh, in the facility, but it is not appropriate or allowed for facilities to say under normal circumstances that there can only be visitors during certain hours, um, or that um, you know residents can only have visitors if they behave a certain way, if the if the resident behaves a certain way, etc. Visitation cannot be used as a reward or punishment. Visitation is a right. And what I included here in the excerpts from the federal rules is that a little bit about what has to be done in support of that right. So the facility must meet the following requirements. I'm not going to read this all. Um, but that includes informing each resident or the resident representative. And this is really important because all the rights we talk about in this program and any other program, all of the nursing home resident rights go to the resident. They do not go to the family member. So it's always up to the resident. However, if the resident lacks capacity or if the resident has assigned um, the ability to make decisions for him or her to somebody else, then it becomes that resident. So the facility must inform each resident of his or her visitation rights and related facility policies and procedures, including any clinical or safety restriction or limitation on such rights, um, the reasons for the restrictions or limitation to whom the restrictions apply and when he or she's informed of his or her other rights under the section. So really important because even though now we are in essentially seven months of, of a lockdown or or a um, partial lockdown now, maybe over the past uh, month or two, where it, things have become a little bit less strict, it's still important to know that you have the right to this information as a resident or as the resident's representative. So facilities have to be providing this information even now, and they have to be providing you with information in regard to any restrictions or limitations uh, resulting from COVID-19. They also have the right, um, excuse me, they also have the requirement, excuse me, to inform each resident of their rights to have uh, visitors uh, whom they designate, including but not limited to a spouse, including a same-sex same spouse, excuse me, domestic partner, another family member or a friend, and his or her right to withdraw or deny such consent at any time again, getting to that point that rights really go to the resident not so much the family member, um, that it's really resident focused, just like everything we talk about uh, when we talk about ombudsman advocacy or, or advocacy on behalf of residents, it's really focused on the resident. Um, and then um, lastly, I just wanna to skip to number D, that the facility has an, an obligation to ensure that all visitors enjoy full and equal visitation privileges consistent with resident preferences. And this is really important. The reason why I wanted to mention it is because we're hearing of facilities that are not providing the same access to residents and, and to visitation, uh, depending upon the uh, resident's ability to ask for them, the family's ability to ask for them as well, or the you know the family making appointments, et cetera, and some, and then being excluded from appointments because the appointments. Um, supposedly fill up for the week. Those things are not appropriate. Again, the rights are recognized in the federal rules as being essential and that the, every resident enjoys equal access to those rights. Um, next slide, please, Eric. So this is a overview. What I want to do is talk about what has gone on since. Again, because there's been, I think, a lot of confusion uh, between what's going on in the federal rules and the federal recommendations and how the states are responding. So in the next couple of slides, I'm really gonna focus on 
what has gone on in the federal rules, because the federal rules um, really take precedence uh, in all in all cases. But uh, you know, especially where we're really concerned about visitation, of course, here and over the past several months. So on March 13th, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, a federal agency, they issued a memo saying that facilities should restrict visitation of all visitors and all non-essential health care personnel, except for certain compassionate care situations, such as an end of life situation. And we're gonna talk more about compassionate care in, a fourth, in another slide, but I just wanna mention it was not only, and it has never been only end of life situations. This was just an example that CMS gave. And again, this is the federal language. So all, March 13th, again, they restricted all visitation except for compassionate care situations. On May 18th, they issued some reopening recommendations. Now this is important wording. I know there's a lot to swallow here. And again, you know, we have information on this on our website and we have this program which you can print out, um, you know, take parts of copy from, et cetera, on the website as well. But on May 18th, they, they issued these recommendations Recommendations are not really the same as a rule. A recommendation was really made to the state to do what the states wanted to do, and it was more of a suggestion rather than a rule. So it did not take precedence as federal rules normally do. Uh, so what CMS said was given the critical importance in limiting COVID-19 exposure to nursing home residents, decisions on relaxing restrictions should be made with careful review of a facility level, community, and state factors and that state and local leaders should regularly monitor the factors reopening and adjust their plans accordingly. And again, this is important because it talks about not just having a monolithic policy that is take it or leave it. And what we've seen is that, you know, a state would have a policy, a, a facility would have a policy, and nobody would really be thinking about what's going on in the community. Like Eric spoke before when he was talking about COVID-19 and he focused on the map of New York, and you can get those data for all the states. We just focused on, on New York for that example uh, from the Washington Post. But you can see that what's going on in different communities. This from May 18th, even early, you know, fairly early on in the pandemic, this was the expectation, but it's not what we've seen ha happen. And I know, you know, I've spoken to many family members uh, and really been privileged to, to participate in some Family, um, family council meetings. I know how frustrating this is. And I've been a family member myself, as many of you know. Um, but this is really important because again, it's the expectation that you're just not making, the states and the nursing homes are just not making a policy that suits them, but that it's looking at what is going on in the community and what is gonna be most safe for residents. Then in June, CMS issued a, a FAQ, a frequently asked questions on nursing home visitation, because there was a lot of confusion. As I'm sure many of you know, we saw nursing homes that were restricting compassionate care visits to only be at the end of life, only to be sometimes at the last minutes of life. And many, many people we heard of um, died alone uh, and their family members never got to see them, never got to say goodbye because the facility did not take steps to provide appropriate compassionate care, which again, does not have to be at the end of life. So the FAQ that that nurse that excuse me that CMS issued in June provided some uh, some updates and some information on compassionate care and on the um, and on opening up access to nursing home um, to nursing home residents for visitation. So what they said at the time was no new cases in the facility for four weeks, 28 days, no staff shortages adequate access to testing and local hospital capacity, meaning that, that there had to be uh, availability in the hospital. If there was to be an outbreak again, that the hospitals could handle that. Next slide, please. And then of course, as I mentioned before, what I really wanted to focus on a bit here uh, is the compassionate care visitation and CMS's clarification of that. And I just, this is again, language taken directly from that FAQ, uh, and I just wanna read it because I think this is really valuable. While end of life situations were used as examples of compassionate care situations in previous CMS memoranda, the term compassionate care situations 
does not exclusively refer to end-of-life situations. For example, for a resident who was living with their family before being admitted to a nursing home, the change in their environment and sudden lack of family could be tra a traumatic experience. Allowing a visit from a family member in this situation would be consistent with the intent of the term compassionate care situations. Uh, similarly, excuse me, allowing someone to visit a resident whose friend or family member recently passed away would also be consistent with the intent of these situations. So we're still largely dealing with this because as I'll talk about in a couple of the next slides, the um, CMS did issue more relaxed guidance, again, federal, federal guidance here, which the states should be implementing and which we and others are advocating for the states to be implementing. But in the meantime, compassionate care is uh, a really valuable leverage because every state, as far as I know, uh, allows compassionate care visitation. And so to my mind, the, law, you know, the biggest problem and the implement is that the facilities are only, again, identifying that inappropriately as being end of life. So I would just use, use this, and we're gonna talk more about advocacy in a couple of slides, but I would just think about this and use this. What does compassionate care mean? If you've noticed that your resident, your loved one is losing weight, if you notice that she is or he is wearing the same clothing day after day when you speak to him and looks disheveled, look, looks unkempt, uh, if, you, if you know that they are not being taken to the bathroom or not being taken for walks to maintain their, uh, their ability to ambulate, uh, things like that. If you're seeing a decline, if they're seeing that they're becoming less responsive, uh, if they have dementia and they really rely on you for, um, for visitation and for help, that, those are compassionate care visitations. So we would strongly urge carefully thinking about making that case to the nursing home, uh, you know, asking your long-term care ombudsman for help in doing so. But again, really thinking, unfortunately, um, you know, as I said from the start, uh, under normal situations, it's the resident's home and they have the right to visitation. This has kind of flipped things on its side with, with COVID-19 beyond just protecting residents from the, from the, the coronavirus, but more for uh, in terms of really subjecting residents and families too often to the whims of the facility. So we, you know, I'm trying to, uh, you know, I've been trying to think about, and I'm hoping that that we're providing some some information and some ideas for you to think about in terms of advocating effectively for a, uh, in particular, compassionate care situation. Uh, next slide, please, Eric. And so here are the current federal rules. I think it was September 17th that CMS issued a memo. And again, a memo really means this is what we expect you to do to implement the federal requirements, just to be very clear on what that is. So the current federal rules regarding visitation. Um, CMS says, and again, this is CMS language, visitations can be conducted through different means based on a facility structure and residence needs, such as in residence rooms, dedicated visitation spaces, outdoors and for circumstances beyond compassionate care situations. This is as of September 17. Core principles, these aren't all of them, but included uh, some of them here, screening for symptoms for people who are coming to visit, hand hygiene, face covering, keeping social distance and cleaning and disinfecting surfaces. Many of these things, except for, I guess, face covering and social distancing are things that should be taking place on a normal basis in a nursing home. Visitation should be person-centered, considering the resident's physical, mental, and psychosocial well-being and support their quality of life. The risk of transmission can be further reduced through the use of physical barriers, such as plexiglass dividers or curtains. And also, nursing homes should enable visits to be conducted with an adequate degree of privacy. Again, this is the resident's home. It's very hard for them, of course, to leave, especially now during the COVID pandemic. Um, so facilities have to be taking steps to ensure that there's some privacy. Next slide, please. So first I wanted to just briefly talk about outdoor visitation. And again, this was mid-September, so it was certainly warmer here in the Northeast. Uh, you know, other parts of the country will be warm and we'll be able to have outdoor visitation 
you know, for many more months, if not throughout most of the winter. But CMS is saying that that the facilities, um, you know, the outdoor visitation, first of all, is preferred, and that facilities should be creating accessible and safe outdoor spaces for visitation. Uh, you know, I was very concerned at the start when I was hearing that, oh, you know, they were doing it, you know, just in a parking lot, in the parking lot, you know, they would have one place in a parking lot, and then that became dangerous, uh, that they didn't want to have people in a courtyard. Um, CMS is saying that facilities really have a um, have an obligation here. Uh, it's not a requirement per se, but it's an expectation that facilities are making provisions for residents to, to have visitation outside. They've also, as I noted here, received uh, or can receive money to build facilities or to help the nursing home, nursing homes can receive the money, excuse me, uh, to facilitate this visitation. So they can receive grants of up to $3,000 to purchase tents for outdoor visitation uh, or dividers, you know, plexiglass dividers, as many of you have seen probably in, in the um, supermarket at the, you know, or in the drugstore, et cetera, um, that they are giving facilities extra money in addition to all the millions of dollars, actually billions of dollars that nursing homes are getting uh, during the COVID period, but they actually can apply for a grant of up to $3,000 each just to help them with visitation with outdoor visitation. Next slide, please. So I wanted to talk, obviously, you know, especially as we're getting colder here in the northern part of the country, uh, talk about indoor visitation and what does CMS say now about this? So this is again, the federal language, facilities should accommodate and support indoor visitation, including visits for reasons beyond compassionate care situations based on the following guidelines. One, there's been no new onset of COVID-19 cases in the last 14 days, and the facility is not currently conducting outbreak testing. Visitors should be adhering to the core principles of, and staff should be, should be monitoring um, to make sure adherence to the core principles, meaning, of course, social distancing, wearing a mask, uh, sanitation, etc. Facilities should limit the number of visitors per resident at one time and limit the total number of visitors in the facility at one time based upon the size of the building and the physical capacity. Facilities should consider scheduling visits for a specified length of time to help ensure all residents are able to receive visitors. I really want to emphasize that. So yes, there can be limitations on time, but the point is over and over again that this is resident-centered and to make sure that residents have access, as we said at the very beginning, without discrimination as to who they are, whether they have dementia or not, but that residents have the right to have visitation. And of course, just lastly, is that the facility is making sure that there's limited movement within the facility so that people are, are not wandering around. And this is again, not hard. It's not, it's not rocket science. Uh, you know, what we're saying you know, in the past, maybe you visited a loved one and you took him or her out or you walked around um, the nursing home for, you know, took a little walk or went to a public space where you can chat with family, maybe children or grandchildren. Uh, that is obviously not appropriate right now under the COVID-19 pandemic uh, circumstances. It's not safe for the resident. It's not safe for the family members. It's not safe for the staff. Uh, but facilities are expected to be compensating and to making appropriate arrangements, not just sitting on their hands and saying, oh, we, you know, we don't have the capacity to have visitation. CMS is again saying, these are the things that should be happening. Next slide. Uh, so I wanted to provide a little bit of information on uh, recommendations and resources. First, I just included this, this came out um, about a week ago now. This was a Forbes article, an inside look at how COVID-19 is driving an epidemic of loneliness in nursing homes. Uh, and Eric said, you know, uh, touched on this earlier on about, you know, residents who are, uh, you know, we're, we're very concerned residents who are dying of loneliness, residents who are suffering from loneliness and suffering from really serious neglect. And, and as I interrupted Eric before with that alert that came out that the CD is, CDC has found that there are over a quarter million more deaths than normally take place in a year. So it's not just COVID-19, it is deaths due to other reasons. And again, it makes, you know, just the way that nursing home residents and assisted living residents 
have been um, more impacted by COVID-19, more, more severely impacted by COVID-19 uh, than the population at large, it, I think it's, it's very, very likely, and one can assume that those, uh, those extra deaths, so to speak, are also taking place in these facilities. So again, another reason why, not, not just for sharing you know, um, time together and for the uh, addressing psychosocial needs, which are incredibly important, I'm not, not minimizing them in any way, but that this is really a matter of, of life and death for, for a lot of our residents. So we, um, we've talked about some of these before, but I just wanted to highlight them again. And I actually checked um, when I was putting the slide together to make sure that they're still relevant and they are. So we have joint re recommendations that we made with several organi other organizations, Center for Medicare Advocacy and the Consumer Voice and Justice in Aging and California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. Uh, joint recommendations around visitation that again are still re relevant for advocacy today. Um, we have the link to it it's on our website uh, here. And then we also have a blueprint for restoring visitation rights, which we've seen some of the principles adopted uh, by some of the states in terms of allowing people to have a, a special visitor, uh, you know, to, to indicate or designate someone that they want to visit, visit them, that's being the resident, or of course, the resident's family member, if they're the one who has decision-making capacity. But um, both of these, I think, are still useful. They're just common sense recommendations to support better uh, access for residents and for families and for, and for families and friends as well, of course. Uh, next slide, please. And then I wanted to just provide some advocacy tips because I know, you know the families that I've spoken to, uh, advocating for a loved one in a nursing home is very challenging and advocating for residents as, as an ombudsman or as an advocate in uh, an Alzheimer's association or legal aid, et cetera, um, is very, very challenging on a normal basis. So obviously things are much harder now and much more frustrating. And again, all the things we've been talking about, how, how residents are, are being exposed to greater risk of neglect and of loneliness, et cetera, makes us even more, more difficult. What I wanted to say though here is that one, it's really important to know that as a family member, as an advocate, kind of like we noted on that slide before in the Forbes article, um, you're not alone. There's so many people that we're hearing from that other groups that we work with are hearing from as well that are suffering enormous challenges and heartbreak in trying to get to their family. So here are a couple of tips that, I, that we thought would be useful for, um, for families, for friends, for others who are working with families and with nursing home residents. Number one, I would say, is to think ahead. Start thinking now about what you're going to do to see your loved one in the nursing home for Thanksgiving and over the Christmas, Hanukkah, um, uh, other holidays, Kwanzaa, et cetera, that are taking place towards the end of the year. Um, our recommendation is to start making arrangements earlier on and if possible, make arrangements to visit maybe not on the day of a holiday where it's gonna be very hectic. You might be more limited in time. Uh, you might face getting there and there's an issue. Try to make an arrangement, uh, I would say before or after. Many people I know have off the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, they may have off Christmas week. So try to, uh, what I would do, what I suggest personally is to think about, you know, how can I meet with my um, resident? How can I see him or her? in a way that's gonna be comfortable and safe to commemorate a holiday, but maybe not on the day of the holiday. Uh, as I mentioned before, focus on the right to compassionate care visitation and how you can make the case for a clinical need or a psychosocial need for the resident. If you've noticed that there's been some decline in either their, their clinical function, their walking, their being able to go to the bathroom um, or their psychosocial function that they're not being responsive, if they feel angry, if they're having so-called behavioral symptoms of dementia, use that to make the case for compassionate care visitation. Uh, third is to know and express your rights about visitation. As I mentioned before, is that the, for instance, there are no limitations 
on the number of compassionate care visits. We've heard of people who've gotten to the nursing home and been told, you know, you can only have one visit and this is it, uh, or they only get a half hour with their resident. As we mentioned before, there might be time frames and, or time allowances for visitation so that everyone can have a visit in the facility, but it is not appropriate if the facility is only allocating two weekdays, two weekday afternoons between say two and four for visitation. Um, this is not a storage unit that you have a certain amount of time to come in and out to get your, um, to, you know, to, to get your, your clothing for change of season or to get your Christmas decorations or anything like that. This is visiting a human being and nursing homes are required to have sufficient staffing and services and supplies to meet the residents that they have. And if they don't have um, the staffing and supplies, they are obligated to help that resident uh, transfer out of the facility to, to a place that does have that. So I'm not saying that's gonna happen. I'm not suggesting um, that you transfer residents out, especially now, unless you, you, know, you need to, unless you feel like they'd be better off someplace else. Uh, what I'm saying is that when the facility is licensed under Medicare, Medicaid, when they take our money um, and when they're licensed again by or overseen by the federal and the state government, they are agreeing to provide this level of staffing uh, and this level of services. And then to make it so that visitation can only take place at their convenience is completely inappropriate. Uh, I know this happens. I know it's frustrating. I know it's, it's hard to say specifically, well, you have to have more hours. But again, some of the things that I've been trying to raise, and this again will be on our website, uh, and you're welcome to print it out and download it, use it in any way you like. Uh, the purpose is, is that you have, uh, resident has rights around visitation, around access to people on the outside, to family, et cetera. And it's a facility's obligation to be making that happen. Lastly, I wanted to provide some resources for speaking out. This is in addition to the long-term care ombudsman program, which we highly recommend, um, you know, contacting your ombudsman as really a first step if you find you're having difficulty uh, working with the facility and also filing a complaint with the State Department of Health, the Department of Public Health. That's, that can be valuable as well, though I know a lot of people can find that frustrating because the complaints are not always very well responded to. So we wanted to provide some additional information, one, and, and, and resources. One is we strongly suggest that people reach out, make a phone call to your state legislator, um, to your congressperson, et cetera. We provide the links here. Uh, openstates.org will give you the information. You type in your address for your state legislators. Uh, Congress.gov forward slash contact dash us will give you easy access to finding who your federal legislators are. Give them a call. They can often be very influential with the nursing home owners who depend upon them for their profits and for their money. So I think speaking to legislators on both the state and the federal level can be really useful. Uh, call your governor's office if you're concerned, if your facility is saying, well, this is what the State Department of Health has told me and I'm not gonna do anything unless the State Department of Health tells me otherwise, call your governor's office and contact information for any governor in the United States is www.usa.gov forward slash state dash governor. And again, these slides will be available so you can see it uh, on our website. You don't have to take it all down. Uh, and then lastly, especially in terms of, um, of advocating for visitation is contact the CMS regional office. So as I've mentioned um, a number of times, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they oversee nursing home care. They leave it generally to the state agencies, the state departments of health to be doing the oversight, but they also have a role and they, they, uh, they implement that through these regional offices. So every state department of health reports up to a regional office. And our concern has been that the regional offices are not doing enough to oversee the states. They, they need to hear, in other words, they need to hear from us when things are not working out and our complaints are not being responded to. So we have, I actually just uploaded it. This is the last, um, uh, last inf latest information I should say that's available as of last night for the CMS regional offices. It's on our web website. 
I have the link here. It's nursinghomeprogram1.org. I'm not going to read it all out, um, but you can see it again on the slides, which are up on our website now, I believe. Uh, so contact your regional office, uh, ask to speak to the regional manager or the survey manager, and let them know if you have a concern. So any of the things I just mentioned, the state, federal legislators, calling your, your governor's office, calling the CMS regional office, this can be used if you have a problem with visitation or concern about visitation, or if you have a quality of care, a neglect concern, contact them. Everything is in the, you know, every, every resident right is in the federal rules. So uh, as I mentioned before, the state agency, the Department of Health should also be taking your complaints. But if you're not satisfied, if you're not, you're not feeling that things are moving uh, quickly enough, I mean, again, Residents are dying, residents are suffering. This is completely unacceptable. Um, speak out to our leaders. And then lastly, I just wanted to add, and we haven't made this recommendation before, but in, for, in respect to quality of care cases only. So I would not use this for a complaint about visitation, but for a quality of care case, you can also contact the US Attorney's Office in, in your area. Uh, so we have a link here to justice.org and the where you could find out who your U.S. attorney is. And you can call that office and ask for the elder justice coordinator or the health care coordinator. And you can file a complaint with them, again, about quality of care cases only. If you're seeing resident neglect, if you're seeing that they're just not getting the care, the medication, the, the help uh, maintaining their ability to go to the bathroom, uh, call bells not answered for hours at a time, uh, those are quality of care issues. So quality of care issues, you can certainly again, express to any of the offices I mentioned earlier, but in terms of the US Attorney General's office or US Attorney's office, excuse me, I would say really just limit that to quality of care. And again, this is all on the slide, which is on our website. Next slide, please. So I wanted to go through a couple other residents' rights that are somewhat related to you know, visitation. Uh, and that's access to information and uh, ability and residents' rights for communication. Next slide, please. So first, and again, as you can see, and, and you know, I often say this when, when, when I start the program, that our programs tend to be pretty content heavy. We wanna give you as much information as you can use in the future to uh, advocate for yourself or to help a resident or a family member if you are an ombudsman or in legal aid or, or an attorney, et cetera. Uh, so we always have a lot of content in our programs, but all the information is available on our website and this presentation can be downloaded, it can be printed out, you can you know, pick out information that's of interest to you, uh, etc. So you don't have to worry about memorizing this, but I just wanted to plug in that one, residents, and we're talking about resident records here, residents have the right to access their personal and medical records. A facility must provide the resident or the person who is the resident representative access to personal and medical records pertaining to him or herself upon an oral or written request in the form and format requested by the individual uh, if it is readily producible in such form and form format or if not in a readable hard copy form uh, or such other form and format as agreed by the facility and the individual within 24 hours, excluding weekends and holidays. Why did we include this here? I mean, one, as, as you know, Eric started to say, and as I've been talking about for the past uh, 20 minutes or so, visitation, connection with the resident has been really threatened uh, and limited uh, during COVID-19. Uh, and so what we want to do is let families know that they have a right to access the resident's records, even if they are not in the facility. Um, that the nursing home has to respond and has to respond quickly to give them access. Next slide, please. And this is, I also wanted to provide information. Again, this is taken directly from the federal rules, which are still in effect during COVID-19. The facility must allow the resident to obtain a copy of the records or any portions thereof uh, upon request and within two working days, oh, excuse me, with two working days, advance notice to the facility. The facility can impose a reasonable cost-based fee on the provision of copies. Um, and there are certain limitations there. And this is important because 
sometimes I've heard of a family member asking for, for information from residence records and the facility will endeavor to charge them for like 80 pages of records. That's not necessary. If you have a certain issue you're concerned about, such as um, what was your residence last, um, what were the results of, of, of your residence last test, uh, what medications are you resident on, um, you don't need to pay. They don't need to provide you with 86 pages or, or, or 100 pages or 50 pages of material. It can be very specific. Again, focusing on that this is the resident's world. This is this is really looking at what is the resident need, not what is most convenient for the facility. So access and copy to records still exist, still has to be timely. You may have to pay if you want the printed copy, but the pay has to be, the cost has to be reasonable. Next slide, please. Uh, and then lastly, I want to talk about communication with protection and advocacy information. So first, that the facility has to provide contact information for the survey agency, which is usually the Department of Health, the Department of Public Health, the um, long-term care ombudsman program, any uh, adult protective services, um, the contact agency for the Medicaid fraud control unit, which um, those of you who are familiar with our work we've talked about in the past, every state now has a Medicaid fraud control unit and every Medicaid fraud control unit is supposed to have a, um, a section that investigates abuse and neglect complaints. So, uh, and they generally have a hotline. So the facility is required to provide that information. I, the reason why we included this today is because I've been hearing too often that um, residents and their representatives are just not getting access to this information. So I wanted to let you know that these entities, again, are out there um, and that they should be furnished to your resident, information should be furnished to your resident or to you from the facility. Uh, next slide, please. And then information also on filing complaints needs to be made available to the resident and to the family if it's the family member that's taking the place of the resident. We have some information here that's directly from the, um, from the federal rules that you can look at. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about it now because we're running low on time, but, but that the, this, is this is available and it's very robust. The residents' rights are really very, very strong in terms of uh, ensuring that residents have access to where they, you know, to knowledge about where they can complain and the ability to file complaints um, without retribution. Next slide, please. So lastly, we're just gonna talk about a few of our resources for advocacy during the pandemic, excuse me, and beyond. I know now some places, as Eric was saying, we're seeing a second wave. I saw some providers today in, online talking about a third wave even. So we want to, you know, we, this will be with us for a while, the pandemic, um, but also we need to be focused again as we've been saying all along, not just on how the COVID-19 is, is um, directly impacting residents, but also how residents are being indirectly impacted because facilities are not, you know, too many facilities are not providing sufficient care and services. So we have a learning center on our website, nursinghome411.org forward slash learning dash center. Uh, and there's a lot of information that we have all about fact sheets uh, and handouts. We have information on, on upcoming as well as the prior webinar recordings, uh, forms and tools for resident advocacy, our dementia care advocacy toolkit, which is especially important nowadays because we're hearing about some really poor um, and frankly clueless dementia care of nursing home residents. And that again is not acceptable. Those rules are all in place. The standards are all in place. There's just no excuse for months and months on end of not fulfilling basic standards of care for residents. Next slide, please. Uh, just also a quick um, point out to our Family and Ombuds Resource Center, and you can access all these things through the uh, front page of our website, nursinghome411.org. Next slide, please. And this is just a copy, just to show you, we have a primer on nursing home uh, quality standards, some of you have probably seen before. Uh, and the primer has a listing of the different quality standards that we've identified as most important. There are a lot of standards, of course, but you can use that to just thumb through it to get a sense of, um, of what the rights are and how to advocate for them. And we've turned a lot of those into fact sheets 
just a couple of little um, pictures of them there for you to see what they look like. They're generally two pages, so front and back, easy to use and to support if you have a concern, whether it be about dementia care or if it's about pressure ulcer care or if it's about access, access to a physician, et cetera, that there, there are fact sheets to help you with that. Next slide, please. And I think lastly, this is our action center. Uh, again, you could access it right from the front of our website, nursing411.org forward slash action dash center. And we have both uh, national alerts as well as uh, New York state specific alerts. So uh, wherever you live, there is uh, useful uh, information or useful links that you can use to send a message on some of the issues that we've identified as important, such as staffing um, and et cetera. Thanks. Next slide, please. Uh, and that's it. Thank you for joining us today. Um, if you are interested in signing up for our future program alerts or for our newsletters, please email info at ltccc.org. There's also, if you're on our website, you can, I think it's under About Us, you can click on a link to join. And there's um, no cost to receive the information and to receive the uh, you know, forthcoming alerts and invites to webinars, et cetera. Our next program, as Eric mentioned before, I hope you'll join us next Wednesday, um, October 28th at 6 p.m. for our anniversary celebration. It's our it was our 30th anniversary in December of last year. Uh, we are celebrating it now because of COVID-19. And so um, it's our one fundraiser of the year. So I hope you'll join us for that. But on November 9th, we are having a special symposium, a half-day symposium on identifying and addressing nursing home resident abuse and neglect and crimes against residents, excuse me. Um, I think it'll be a great program. We have a terrific attorney who has uh, dealt with a lot of elder neglect cases and she has some really good insights and tips. And we also have a uh, truly excellent uh, deputy attorney general from the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit here in New York, who's going to talk about uh, addressing abuse and neglect uh, against residents as well. So we we'll look forward to that and hope you'll join us. And lastly, our next webinar, we're not gonna do a webinar in November because we're gonna have the symposium available, um, is, will be on December 15th. And we're gonna continue talking about residents' rights. That will be family and resident councils and filing grievances will be the focus. And we'll also provide a COVID-19 update. For more information and to register, please go to nursinghome411.org forward slash events. And you can see all those events there. Next slide, please. Here, I just want to provide a graphic for our program for next week. I hope that you will join us. Uh, again, it's on our events page or nursinghome411.org forward slash event forward slash 30th. Um, and we're gonna talk, it's, we're gonna have a nice panel discussion on where we go from here in long-term care, seeing what, how the last seven months have affected nursing home residents and really exposed, I think, a lot of the, a lot of the longstanding serious problems that, that have impacted residents for decades, but we've really seen them come forth during the COVID pandemic. Where do we go? Um, how can we protect residents? How can we make life better for residents in the future? Uh, next slide, please. So that's the end of the program. We're gonna open it up for, let's say about another five minutes. I know we're, we're just close to the hour and uh, sorry about that, but we'll stay on for another five or six minutes or so for Q and A. Sarah? There are tons of great questions. <laughs> um, does the information in this webinar apply to assisted living as well or only nursing homes? The information in the webinar only applies to nursing homes. That's a really great question. This is a major issue for us for many years and I've been raising it a lot during COVID-19 that we're very concerned about what's going on in assisted living this and, and other adult care facilities, the states have undertaken their own guidance there. Sometimes it replicates the, the same guidance for that they're doing for nursing homes. Sometimes it's different. Uh, but I would say in terms of what we're talking about, the tenets of residents' rights, the tenets of, of the needs of residents and, and the foundation for communication, et cetera, are uh, universal. So we don't have the ability to advocate setting, saying, necessarily that this is my resident's right, but you do have the ability, um, I think to say, or to use this information to say, 
look, this is something that we, uh, we know is important. How can, how can, how can you make this happen in, in the assisted living? Thanks, Sarah. Do you have any guidance about what to do when your state Department of Health and governor's orders are more restrictive than federal guidance, CMS? Yes, well, I, again, that, that, that's the whole purpose of, of talking about you know, what those rights were here today of quoting uh, from directly from the federal rules and how they've developed and also those advocacy tools. So uh, I, as I mentioned before, but I would you know, please go back to the slide. I would say certainly focus on compassionate care visitation as because that's always been allowed since you know throughout the pandemic since the beginning of March, and then um, you know using some of the things we talked about to advocate for uh, for opening up, including you know, contacting your governor's office, contacting the legislators, uh, et cetera. Um, can facilities still claim that they can't open for visits due to staffing? And the, combined with the requirement that there be no staff shortage for visits to occur is curious and vague. Have you seen any facilities claiming staff shortage as a reason to deny visits and how would this be remedied? Well, every facility has to, and, I, and I, uh, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, we're publishing th these data about every uh, update every week or two on, uh, on our website, but the CMS um, is posting what the facilities report in terms of their sufficient staffing. Uh, whether and, and essentially, when the facilities now have to report their numbers of cases, numbers of deaths, as has been a federal requ requirement since May 8th, the uh, CMS has, again, since I think the end of May, been publishing that information. And as part of that, every week, the facility has to say whether or not they're experiencing PPE shortages or staffing shortages, et cetera. So you can look at those data. Again, they're on our website. They're also available. You look up CDC nursing home data. You can probably find it through a web search uh, if you want to get to the raw data. But you could, you know, you could look up your facility and, and you could see if they said they had sufficient staffing. Yes, it's vague because as we've been saying um, throughout the program and, and, and all of our programs, the rules are supposed to be focused on the resident and the facility is supposed to be focused on the resident. And the rules, you're right, are vague, but they also, um, the problem, frankly, is that they are not very well implemented. They're not very well enforced. So when you see issues, when, you know, too often when the states see issues, excuse me, they, uh, in regard to low staffing, they don't penalize the nursing homes appropriately for the impact of that low staffing. Um, but this is something that you can use to advocate. If your facility is saying that they don't have enough staff, then I would personally file a complaint about low staffing. And I would note that. Uh, I, we strongly recommend you know, if you're a family member, uh, joining with other family members in a family council. And we have actually a, this is on our website, but you can sign up for a, um, a Zoom room for your family council meeting. That would be entirely private so you can meet even with the nursing home being closed to group meetings, you can meet remotely. Uh, and that's something that a nursing home can, excuse me, that, that, that family members can really advocate on. And if the facility is saying we don't have enough staffing, they're essentially admitting that they're not meeting the, meeting the federal rules. Thanks, Sarah. Um, for compassionate care visit, does the home need to be free of COVID-19? No. Uh, so the compassionate care visit has to take place safely, um, but the compassionate care visit has always been required to be allowed. And that's why, again, you know, it may be hard to get in there uh, just for a regular visit under compassionate care, but we urge people to make the case if they're seeing that there's a degradation in their resident's condition, whether it be uh, emotional or, or whether it be clinical or medical, that they are, uh, you know, make the case as appropriate for compassionate care visitation that is safe uh, and appropriate no matter what the circumstances in the nursing home are. Uh, let's take one more question, please. Ah, so this one, I know that you're gonna have to shorten the answer to. What are <laughs> CMP funds? Oh, thank you. Uh, so, uh, 
under the federal rules, uh, a CMP is a civil money penalty. So and when a facility is penalized, it does have a, a, a financial penalty against it. Uh, that's, what a C, that's what a CMP is. And the states are allowed to retain some of that money to use for um, special projects uh, upon state and CMS approval uh, to improve resident care and quality of life. And they, again, that has to be approved by, um, by CMS. CMS is now saying that they can, the states can allocate up to $3,000 per facility for the, uh, for the use of protective you know, equipment for visitation. Uh, so I thank you all very much. I'm sorry we couldn't get to more questions. Uh, we will, as you all know, we're a small organization. So we will, um, we don't have the capacity necessarily to respond to them all. I apologize for that, but we will review them and try to incorporate them into future programs. And I, again, if you could help us, um, we would certainly appreciate your support by joining us next Wednesday afternoon to help support these programs and other work that we do on behalf of residents and families in nursing homes and assisted living. And I thank you all for joining us. I hope if you um, hope to see you on Wednesday and, and also on November 9th for that program on addressing abuse and neglect. We have some terrific speakers, some terrific resources. It's free and it should be really valuable. So thank you all very much. I think with that, we are going to end.